Welcome to the Hemang Pulse, the podcast that allows you to know everything hematology. Keep your fingers on the pulse of hematology on the Hemang Pulse by subscribing, listening, and this is your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan. I have the one and only Dr. Jonathan Friedberg, a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Rochester. He is the Samuel Durand, Professor of Medicine and the Director of the James P. Wilmot Cancer Institute. He wears many other hats as well that I will discuss with him, but most notably, he is the current Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Clinical Oncology. I'm very happy and delighted to have Dr. Jonathan Friedberg on the Hemonc Pulse today to talk about diffuse large B-cell lymphoma with a focus on the Polarix trial that has led to the approval of polatuzumab in frontline therapy for patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It is currently on the NCCN guidelines, and it was approved by the FDA on April 19, 2023. Dr. Friedberg is going to share his insights about this trial, about the how we approach patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, as well as next steps. So welcome to the show. I, I want to start by just a little bit about you. Um, you. You wear gazillion hats. So, but, you know, maybe briefly tell us who you are, what you do, and how did you end up where you are right now? Yeah, it's always interesting to look back, I guess, and figure that out. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things that I think I hear a lot on, on podcasts like yours, how the, this path isn't necessarily straight. You know, so I'm first and foremost, I guess I would say a, a lymphoma physician. I continue to actively take care of patients uh, with lymphoma. One of the nice parts about University of Rochester, where I work, is that we have a very um, comprehensive primary care base. So I see a lot of, quote, uh, bread and butter uh, lymphoma presentations. And then on top of that, uh, we're a tertiary and quaternary care center for a, a large region in upstate New York. So I also have the opportunity to uh, collaborate with oncologists throughout our region for rare and complex lymphomas, uh, CAR T-cell treatments, and a lot of the specialty care. And I really like that mix. Um, we've developed a large lymphoma group here, and part of my role in that is mentoring, and uh, that's been a very satisfying part of my career. I guess on top of being a lymphoma provider, um, administratively, I'm the Cancer Center Director. Uh, we've been in the midst of a strategic plan um, working toward uh, NCI designation, and I think we're very close to that, so that's been exciting. and more important than the actual designation is the progress that you know that has made including recruiting a, a number of uh, very talented scientists establishing our community outreach and engagement and diversity equity and inclusion offices uh, more than doubling our clinical trial accrual and really defining our catchment area and trying to impact our catchment area in a favorable way uh, we learned for example that our region, which we define as 27 counties, uh, more than 3 million people uh, in upstate New York, uh, if that region were its own state, and it would be big enough to be its own state, it's bigger than Vermont and New Hampshire combined, 
it would have the second highest incidence of cancer in the country uh, behind only the state of Kentucky. And that really speaks to some demographic concerns. Uh, we have an older patient population, uh, a lot of uh, tobacco use, a sedentary lifestyle. There may be other exposures as well. So we really see it as our mission to try to reverse that significant disparity. Environmental possibility as well. Exactly. And there have been a lot of companies here in Rochester and the region that you know could uh, have contributed to that as well. Well, that's not. These are not only two hats you have. I already know two other hats. So let's keep going. Yeah, no. So I guess on the research side, um, I've been interested in novel therapeutics for lymphoma. I have uh, my own grant funding for that, and I've uh, collaborated in a couple of uh, consortia, um, including the Leo, which is the Lymphoma Epidemiology of Outcomes, and the Holistic, which is a Hodgkin Lymphoma Consortia. And I also chair the SWOG uh, Lymphoma Committee. That's uh, been an incredibly satisfying uh, opportunity for me. Um, we have an amazing team there. And that has led um, most recently to the uh, 1826 trial. And I know you had a nice conversation with my colleague, Dr. Herrera, about his journey on that trial. But you know, it's an opportunity to really impact practice as well as provide mentorship. And then I also, uh, for the last almost two years now, have been the editor-in-chief of Journal of Clinical Oncology, which has been its own adventure. So how in the world do you have time for all of this again? <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, I, I will say that some of these roles are synergistic. Uh, you know, I was asked that question around uh, our NCI designation plans. And, uh, you know, the opportunity to be editor-in-chief of JCO really gives me, a, I think, a, a unique insight into the pulse of medical oncology. Um, I'm seeing, you know, manuscripts, both that are accepted and not accepted, uh, months to sometimes a year before they're, they're widely available. And it really gives me a sense as to what the trends are, the direction of the field. And that has been extremely informative in decision-making regarding our cancer center's direction. Do you read all of them, Jonathan? Like, do you read every submitted manuscript or do you kind of distribute them and you be selected which one you read yourself? Yeah, so we have, um, I have an amazing team, um, both staff and um, associate editor team, including my uh, the senior deputy editor, uh, Kathy Miller, who's um, a breast cancer specialist. And I thought it was important to have solid tumor representation right at the top of the leadership structure. And, uh, you know, as manuscripts are submitted, um, we have a process where they're triaged to content experts. And most of that triage happens uh, initially without me uh, getting involved. I get involved um, first for lymphoma papers. I like to see most of those. And I also get involved uh, if it's a question of which editor, if it's a, a complicated study, or there's a potential conflict, um, you know, regarding, uh, you know, an investigator, for example, at one of the other editors' institutions. Um, but I do look at all the rejections without review, as well as the rejections. Um, you know, the amount of time I spend reading those papers depends if the paper has been reviewed by three, you know, highly capable reviewers and everybody says it should be rejected. I may not spend much more time than just looking at the abstract, but I can tell you, I do spend more time on the priority rejections because I feel that they should get, you know, a very careful look. 
And, you know, if one of the associate editors who's a content expert, you know, decides to priority reject the paper, 90 to 95% of the time, I will agree. But if there's a question, I'll often, you know, we'll push it back and we'll send it out for review. And I do spend a lot of time on the JCO. Um, it's something that I have to spend time on every day uh, just to try to keep the trains moving on time. But, you know, having carved out that time, it's it's very satisfying work and I, I really do enjoy it. No, I can imagine. I have to say this is a completely different podcast by itself. And I'll I'll reach to your assistant at, at some point when things slow down for you. Because I think talking about the peer review process, the there's so much there to unpack. Uh, I don't want to take away from the purpose of this podcast, but um, uh, I, it must be sometimes you probably get also a lot of the pre-submission thing. Yeah. Like, you know, a colleague of yours and like, hey, I have this paper should I send it or do you think it's, I mean, that, that takes a lot of time too. Yeah, we encourage that. Um, sometimes those are very straightforward. You could just say, this is not, it's a great idea, right. but it's not a JCO paper. You know, if it's a study in mice or something like that, we right. get all kinds of, of queries from all over the world. Yeah. But sometimes those we try to spend, you know, extra time on. And, you know, the other advantage of JCO, we have a great biostatistical team. And, you know, I think a lot of the reason for the success of JCO has been the rigor in in our review process that includes biostatistical review. I agree that medical publishing is worthy of another conversation yeah, at absolutely. some point. It's it's a very transformative time with chat GPT, um, you know, yeah. the new platforms for for the way people access content. It's it's a very interesting time in medical publishing. And I've been learning these things, really drinking from a fire hose, because, you know, it's one thing to be the expert on content, but learning these other issues has been very interesting. Yeah, there's so much rigor in JCO. I have my own drawer of the rejections, Jonathan. I, too, have that. We all but... do. So, so you know, you know, it's oftentimes stated, uh, and maybe appropriately so, that, you know, being a lymphoma specialist is very rewarding, because you tend to cure a lot of patients. And I think partly this is true because we probably cure more than we don't cure. But having said that, there's clearly unmet needs, especially in large cell lymphoma. Um, and I think if if I may ask you in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, specifically the aggressive form of lymphoma, despite what we say, it's it's you know, it's good to see these patients because I can cure them. But the reality is, you you know, that's not always true. You have so many unmet needs. Can you think about where these unmet needs, because I'm going to segue from there to the Polarix trial. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I think uh, you're right. If you look at population databases rather than clinical trial results, um, you know, it's probably only about two thirds of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that are ultimately cured. Um, maybe up to 70% in, in some registries. But that means that, you know, fully a third of patients uh, are, are not being cured. And we know this is an aggressive disease. And for most of those patients, if they're not cured, they're going to succumb to the disease often within weeks to months. To me, the first group of patients that you have to put out there is an unmet need are older patients. Again, as I alluded to uh, at the beginning, fortunate, I believe, to be practicing in an environment that does include, you know, quote unquote, real world patients. And, you know, that means that, you know, patients who may not make it to trials or to academic medical centers, you know, we see and take care of. And 
I'm dealing right now, uh, right before this meeting, I have an 84 year old who's upstairs and, you know, has some CNS involvement and, you know, you're trying to develop, you know, a, a treatment plan for her. She's in with toxic effects of treatment, which, you know, is going to be tense because I'm trying to be as aggressive as we can with the treatment, but at the same time, try to adjust things so that it's going to be tolerable. And um, clearly that's an area where a lot of the patients who aren't cured, we should acknowledge are older patients. And in fact, even if you look at the biologic predictors of poor outcome in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, double hit disease, or um, you know ABC subtype, for example, they are enriched for older patients. So um, it can be very difficult when you try to apply, you know, those predictors and say, oh, well, we just need to give them more aggressive chemotherapy or early CAR T-cell treatment, because a lot of those patients may ultimately not be eligible for those. Uh, that said, even um, younger patients who can tolerate full course chemotherapy, as I think you're implying, there are subsets of these younger patients that have inferior outcome. And certainly going beyond stage, there are other um, clinical predictive factors and now some biologic predictive factors. And uh, you know, ideally, we need more definitive curative therapy up front to save patients uh, from having to go through complex, expensive, and toxic salvage approaches. So was this the idea of saying, let's do the Polarix and see if we can have a better regimen than RCHOP? Maybe take us through what led yeah, I mean, the I think the, the, the audience knows, even those people who don't uh, treat lymphoma every day, that the CHOP regimen has been one of the oldest regimens that we've used in, in cancer medicine. It goes back to the 80s. And uh, RCHOP you know, has been the standard regimen since about the year 2000, when uh, we attended the hematology meeting and saw the first uh, presentation that rituximab improved progression-free survival and ultimately overall survival in patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma when added to CHOP. Since that time, there have been a number of attempts to try to improve upon RCHOP, uh, looking at uh, intensification, the addition of stem cell transplant, uh, infusional regimens, other ways of changing the doses, and then, of course, all of these studies that have been adding elements to RCHOP. Um, all of them have failed um, and some of that is because in clinical trial populations, RCHOP is pretty effective, so the bar is relatively high. And a lot of it is also maybe some naivete about the biology of the disease. The more recent studies have focused on using cell of origin as an assignment and trying to enroll patients uh, preferentially with the ABC subtype and try to use a more precision approach targeting what we think we understand about that subtype and those studies have also unfortunately been negative, both either because of toxicity concerns or efficacy concerns. And this led to the uh, Polarex trial, which uh, took a very promising drug, polituzumab, that had been approved in the relapse setting in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in combination with chemotherapy with a significantly higher response rate than chemotherapy alone. It also had the advantage of being a relatively well-tolerated agent as um, an agent that is um, not have additive toxicities to, to chemotherapy. And, um, you know, based on uh, preliminary results showing, you know, a, a relatively high rate of efficacy when combined with our CHOP, 
uh, robust phase three uh, double-blind placebo-controlled trial was developed looking at RCHOP versus what we call RPOLA CHP, where essentially polituzumab was switched for vincristine. Who was included in this trial? Like, you know, I mean, you, you know, um, Jonathan, for the non-lymphoma specialists, they sometimes say, we're so confused, you've got 60, 70 types of lymphomas, even within diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, now you have, you know, the high-grade, the IPI, NOS, all of these things. So did Polarex say anybody DLBCL, the double hit? Like, who was allowed to get in? Yeah, I think one of the reasons for the success of the trial was uh, at the time the trial was designed, we were starting to appreciate the importance of being as inclusive as possible. Um, some data had come out initially from Mayo Clinic showing that patients who take a long time to enroll on trial tend to have a more favorable outcome. And you end up, if you have a long process to enroll a patient on a trial, weeding out the sick people who need urgent treatment. So this trial was designed to try to get patients on quickly and to be as inclusive as possible. Um, it did enroll patients with IPI two and above. Um, so essentially that's advanced stage disease um, with a risk factor. Um, risk factor could be age, could be LDH. It was fairly inclusive that way. And the reason for that is really to enrich the, the number of events because the outcome of patients with low risk disease, IPI zero and one is so favorable. And then it was inclusive as far as large B-cell lymphoma. So it included patients um, with you know immunodeficiency and EBV-related large B-cell lymphoma, as well as um, at the time, what turned out to be you know the quote double expressor and double hit large cell lymphoma, because that was before those patients were peeled out into uh, their unique category. Um, there were relatively small numbers of those patients enrolled. Um, so in a sense, I think this is a pretty broad picture as to what you would expect with a study of advanced stage diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So what did it show? What did we find out? It's RCHOV compared to uh, RCHP um, uh, plus bolotuzumab. What, what were the findings? Yeah. So I think, first of all, um, the tolerability was uh, very similar between the two arms. And I, I'll speak as, a, as somebody who participated uh, in the trial. Um, again, I told you it was uh, double blind, and I couldn't tell what arm my patients were on, were on. So, in a sense, the toxicity was a little bit what you would expect. Um, you know, whether you get vincristine or polituzumab. Um, when you looked at the the data, there was a bit more diarrhea with polituzumab, a bit more constipation with vincristine. And the other signal that did come out was neutropenia was a bit more with uh, polituzumab, but the rates of febrile neutropenia were really about the same. The growth factor was written in as a requirement for the study, which you know deviated to some degree on standard of care with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So um, that was an important component of this because I think as you balance efficacy and, and safety and tolerability, you know, unlike some of the other studies that tried to add to RCHOP, um, you know, this was was tolerated really quite well. From an efficacy standpoint, there was a benefit as far as progression-free survival um, at the two-year time point. Uh, it was modest, but statistically significant. Um, the difference was about 6%. 
And subsequent presentations of the data have demonstrated that that's durable. If anything, the the um, difference between the two arms might be slightly widening uh, over time. So um, at now three, three and a half years out in follow-up, we're seeing that essentially uh, the way I view it is more patients are cured with the ARPOLA CHP regimen as compared to RCHOP. And that's also confirmed by, if you take a look at the number of patients who got salvage and subsequent treatments, there was a significant imbalance where more patients uh, on the RCHOP arm needed subsequent treatments. So that was the uh, conclusion of the study. And, you know, based on that, ultimately, um, after, you know, as, as you know, a fairly long review process, um, the FDA did approve the drug for the upfront treatment, essentially um, for the population that was included in the clinical trial. So IPI 2 and above diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It was even, uh, I believe, was added to the NCCN guidelines, no? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's become, you know, it's a category one recommendation in the sense that, you know, a randomized trial has shown definitively that this is, it had an improved progression-free survival benefit. Now, obviously what comes up and particularly among, I think, our colleagues in, in the solid tumor world is, you know, what was the impact on overall survival? Because in the solid tumor space, you know, a, a 6% difference in progression-free survival with no overall survival benefit might be viewed as, uh, you know, only a very incremental uh, advance. I think we have to remember that in this disease, somewhat uniquely in the cancer uh, therapeutics you know, landscape, that progression-free survival, uh, particularly at two to three years out, really equates to cure of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Um, so, I mean, the surrogate here is that, you know, more patients are cured with this regimen. And particularly when you look at the um, essentially similar toxicity profile, I think there are few situations in medicine where you would be withholding curative treatment. We do it in Hodgkin lymphoma uh, because we're concerned about both early and late toxic effects. So, you know, Bayacop cures more people with Hodgkin lymphoma, but in the United States, we don't use it very often because we're concerned about infertility and a lot of other things in a disease that is eminently salvageable and where, you know, there's a huge toxicity difference. Um, that's not the case here. Again, I, I told you um, that the experience for the patients are really, is really quite similar between the two arms. So, you know, the only uh, difference may be expense. And, you know, the total expense is a little bit hard to appreciate because if you have less CAR T-cell therapy and that type of thing that you need in the RCHOP arm, I mean, you're 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 potentially saving money with a definitive yeah, cure. Yeah, I mean, it's so. very difficult to look at the total cost of care, but really I, I, I want to hone in on the, 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 what we're dealing with here is the safety is... Yeah is comparable there's no increased toxicity and the pfs difference is statistically significant and as you alluded to it is clinically meaningful one of the things that oftentimes i enjoy having a discussion and a dialogue with our colleagues is that when the overall survival issue comes up in lymphoma and in other diseases it is hard to predict how the lymphoma will recur in other words you know you know the progression-free survival becomes very meaningful because what you said, you're curing more people, 
And if you're not going to do that therapy because there's no OS survival up front, you don't really know at the time of progression how the disease has relapsed and whether you'll be able to do the salvage. You just mentioned your patient to a CNS disease. I mean, if the disease comes in the CNS, probably all bets are off. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, it can take a long time to see overall survival differences. Um, this PFS difference is somewhat reminiscent of what we saw in Hodgkin lymphoma on the Echelon trial initially, uh, which compared brentuximab to um, uh, bleomycin with ABVD. And there, you know, there was a toxicity difference. There's no question that brentuximab adds toxicity. You know, there was more neutropenia, more sepsis. In, in fact, the, the study had to be adapted be once those things happened. But at the end of that study, there was a progression-free survival benefit. And there was a lot of question in the field about whether we should change our practice. And then at year six, an overall survival benefit became apparent. Yeah. And the question is, what's going to happen in, in the Polarx trial, whether we're going to see an overall survival benefit evolve. Um, if you look at the OS curves, I mean, they're at least in the right direction. Um, it's hard to say if the number of events are going to be enough to see anything of significance, but it's something that we'll have to continue to follow. Well, maybe there's an ASH update in San Diego later this year. We'll have to see. Well, you would know. It's but... it's. Uh, I think it's still going to be early to to yeah. really look yeah. at that because you know now, uh, as you were talking about, there have been so many changes in diffuse large B cell lymphoma that in the relapse setting, even if somebody's not ultimately cured. Fortunately, people can can live for a while on on things like bispecific antibodies and, and novel uh, antibody combinations. So to actually see these events happen is taking longer than uh, they used to. So I was trying in preparation to meeting you, Jonathan, I was looking at when the uh, FDA granted the approval of um, the uh, polituzumab uh, polyvient was April 2023. The reason I was looking for that is because we all know that oftentimes the experience of uh, for patients in clinical trials might differ than patients that you see in real world. Have you have you had enough in terms of can you form an opinion whether you're seeing similar results in patients outside of clinical trials traditionally maybe not as fit maybe a little bit older or have you seen some of your referring you know, oncologists refer to you, their experience, uh, more like a real world uh, type of a... I mean, I think it's a, a very important question and uh, my senses were still evolving. Um, our group quickly switched to this being our standard regimen. So I think internally we've had a lot of experience with this and we haven't seen any signals that, um, you know, this isn't working like we would have expected it to. Um, it's it's been relatively seamless once we built the uh, treatment plan and the, the electronic epic, medical the epic, record. The, the epic one, <laughs> right? <laughs> that was the the big complicating factor. So you know, I think uh, that's gone quite well. I I will say that that regionally, um, I think it's been a little slower. That our, our referring physicians, I think, are still learning and and adjusting to this. And you know, we're teaching them that you know there's been a change in the landscape of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So I can't say that broadly speaking, I've seen um, patients being referred in who have had problems. In fact, I've seen patients who were referred in who I think should be getting polituzumab and who, who haven't been offered that at least yet. 
Yeah, and and I think you bring up a very good point, which is the, uh, I mean, the uptake often could be slower because physicians are creatures of habit. And I, you know, think the only solution sometimes is education and sharing the data. And and that's really partly why we're, we're doing this podcast to make sure this data is disseminated broadly. I mean, I think the one thing that there's been a lot of dialogue about, and I don't know if you're planning to to get to this, is that subset analysis of this trial uh, has suggested um, that there may be um, significant benefit in the ABC subtype of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and less clear benefit in the GCB subtype. That has led to different interpretations and I would say an extreme position that that are held by many of my colleagues actually is that you know this particular difference was so striking in subset analyses that maybe we should uh, try to use a precision approach and only use the polituzumab for ABC subtype disease. And in fact, in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, just this most recent issue, there was a letter to the editor from a group that tried to carefully do an analysis and actually try to address questions as to why we're seeing this difference with polituzumab and its potential impact on B-cell receptor signaling. I, I, I do want to address one uh, component of that and why I think we're not ready yet for a precision approach. And that is that in the community, and for that matter, in our institution, uh, the way that cell of origin is assessed is with immunohistochemistry as a surrogate. Uh, we use the Han criteria. I think that's what most people are using. If the disease is CD10 positive, they're going to call it germinal center subtype. If it's CD10 negative, then they look at BCL6 and MUM1, and depending on the results, they're going to call it uh, non-GCB subtype. We know that even in the most experienced hands, there's at least a 10 to 15% discrepancy between the cell of origin assignment by immunohistochemistry and the cell of origin assignment by a gene expression profile like LYMF2CX. The data that was done and published in the Polarix trial was with LYMF2CX. It was a retrospective, centrally run thing. So that even if that's true, that using LYMF2CX, the benefit is really mainly in the ABC subset, Unless you're using that clinically, you're going to miscategorize up to 10 to 15% of people and withhold you know, what's potentially a uh, more highly curative therapy from them. The other thing is I'm aware of some data, and there's going to be some presentation at the ASH meeting on this, that if you look at molecular subtypes of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, there are benefits in some of the molecular subtypes that include both cell of origin. So bottom line is that for the practicing clinician today, I don't think we're ready for a precision approach with this, but this clearly does need to be studied more. And ultimately, as basket trials and other trials are developed using molecular subtyping, I could foresee a day where we will have a more enhanced understanding as to the subsets who are truly benefiting from this treatment. 
And, you know, I mean, being careful with subset analysis is critical because we have been burnt before. <laughs> but you're right. And, and, you know, none of the was powered to really be looked at. Right. And it's it's interesting to me where if if the subset, you know, if the trial were a negative trial, then, of course, everybody says, oh, you can't look at subsets. So right. here the trial's right. positive and they're using the subset to kind of cancel patients out. And so I think we do have to be careful of that. that that's a good segue just to provide maybe a, a summary as we as we let you go back to your seven hats that you're wearing but you know like you know maybe a quick summary to listeners pertaining to polarix trial and 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 what should be the take-home message to folks who are listening yeah i mean i think that this was a robustly done randomized placebo control trial large international trial that showed um, a small but clinically significant benefit as far as progression-free survival uh, in patients with IPI2 and above, uh, large B-cell lymphoma. Double-hit lymphoma maybe uh, should be treated differently, and I think there are now unique trials for that. But other forms of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, I would recommend that based on these results, uh, practice should change. And uh, you know, we look forward to a more enhanced understanding as to how we're going to use this treatment uh, moving forward, ultimately, hopefully, in a precision way. Dr. Jonathan Friedberg, thank you so much. You've given me a lot of time, given our listeners a lot of time, but uh, I'm not going to let you off the hook. You're going to come back. And uh, I, I think there's a lot we can talk, but I'll be, I promise, I'll be very sensitive to your schedule. Thank you so All much. All right. I appreciate it, Chadi. You're very kind. <laughs> you have 700 pads. Dr. Jonathan <laughs> Friedberg on the Heman Fox. Thank you so much.